Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. And we are broadcasting live um, on the land of the Wurundjeri people and the Kulin Nation. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. This episode of Doing Time contains audio images of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who have died and discussion of deaths in custody. First up on the show, we'll be speaking with Tamar Hopkins, who is the lead researcher of a report that was released last Tuesday entitled Policing COVID-19 in Victoria, Exploring the Impact of Perceived Race in the Issuing of COVID-19 Fines During 2020, a project of Inner Melbourne Community Legal. I'm sure that the listeners may remember Tamar. Uh, we have interviewed her many times over the years prior to the pandemic, especially in regards to the people's hearing and also looking at ongoing racial profiling in Victoria of African and Middle Eastern communities. After that, we will speak with, with Renuga and she will introduce herself fully with her title when she comes on. Renuga is a young Tamil activist that started her active activist journey at the age of 10 and we will speak with her. Um, she's speaking on the behalf of the Tamil Refugee Council and we will speak with her about the Immigration Minister Andrew Giles to stop the deportation of Dixton and grant the young Tamil man a permanent visa. And then after that, we're going to be speaking with Kieran, who is an Aboriginal activist, and he will speak to us about the voice to Parliament, and I may ask him some questions about NAIDOC Week. Happy NAIDOC, everyone. And I'd like to now welcome Tamar to the show. Hello, Tamar. Hi, Marissa. It's Great lovely. to be back. Great to be back, <laughs> huh? <laughs> In the most right, difficult yeah. circumstances, huh? Well, yes. I mean, the the story is not new, and it's not it wouldn't be surprising to any listeners of your show. But it's an ongoing story, and so I guess this is new new data telling a story that that will be familiar to your listeners. Can you tell us about the report and and give us some background um, as to as to the recommendations, but also first first up, talk about the report as a whole. Yeah, sure. So this is a report um, 
I was asked to, to look at this issue by Inner Melbourne Legal Service. And Inner Melbourne Legal Service is one of the um, community legal centres around Victoria that were assisting people dealing with COVID fines um, during the pandemic. And the Infringements Working Group of the Federation of the Legal of, of Legal Centres in Victoria was really concerned. They were seeing um, a very kind of racialised component of who was coming forward with with COVID fines, and they were wondering, you know, hang on, what's going on here? Is, is there um, is there something? Is there an issue with the way the police are, are managing this? And what they did was that they got some data from the Victorian crime statistics agency that showed that um, Sudanese people, people born in Sudan and people who um, are of Aboriginal background were grossly overrepresented in the fines that were being issued by Victoria Police at the beginning of... This was data at the beginning of 2020. So they came to me and they said, OK, well, we've got these gross disproportionalities in, in who's being given fines. Can you, is there any way that you can find out whether there's racial profiling going on? So um, so the question was, how can we tell if the police are engaged in racial profiling and the issuing of fines? And so it's really important to understand that there's a difference between disproportionality and racial profiling. So when when you see a, um, like a, a, a gross over-representation of a particular group in the issuing of fines, it it Really, we don't know what the source of that could be. It could be that um, the police are kind of targeting particular areas. It could be that some groups are committing more offences. It could be like a host of reasons that's going on in terms of what, what what's happening. But we wanted to know well, what is the contribution of the police to this kind of over-representation? Are they doing something that could be leading to particular groups being more likely to be targeted for COVID fines? So what um, what I was able to do, I was asked by um, Inner Melbourne Legal Service, they got a grant through the Victorian Law Foundation to um, to investigate this. And we were able to do an FOI for all the police fines that were issued during 2020. And we, um, we were able to extract 37,000 fines during that period that the police had issued. And we separated them into fines that were... Um, that were issued as a result of something that you can see, so whether the person wasn't wearing a face mask or... And the other group was fines that the police would have had to go up and question the person first to determine whether or not an offence had occurred. So there were visually obvious um, offences versus offences where questioning was required first. So with visually obvious ones... you, you you can see them. So you walk along and someone is not wearing a, a face mask and it's quite obvious, but the others required more detail. So this was the basis on which we decided, okay, can we see any racialized differences in who is getting fined in these two different fine types? So to, set the, people, sorry, so yeah. to set the scene here, so basically this all happened in 2020, just for the benefit of listeners, Yep. in terms of the fact that there were lockdowns and it was during the height of the pandemic when the health orders came through, correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So in, in 2020, there were two major periods when fines were being issued. One was in the first period, um, just around uh, March, when, they, when the first set of pandemic um, rules came in. 
And then there was a second really high level of fines being issued around August. And that was when the, the, um, the mask mandates came in, the curfew mandates came in. Um, there was just a much more rigid level of, um, you know, re- requirements, fines, uh, sort of rules that were being enforced at that time. And so we just looked at, we, we were separating the ones um, comparing that second peak of fines, comparing the face masks offences to the um, to the ones that are quite questioning first. And the reason this is really critical is that um, what what when we're looking at profiling, the the idea behind racial profiling is that it's when police are aware of an offence and then they go and find out to see if someone has committed that offence. Like that's what what we most people understand of policing is that's what is meant to be meant to happen but with racial profiling you find a suspect and then you try and figure out if they might have committed an offence and so what we basically did was kind of compare offences that are totally obvious versus ones where we'd expect there to be more racial profiling they had to kind of dig in and discover what was going on and what we found was that yes there was a there was a um, a statistically significant difference in the way that the police were um, we're issuing these these two groups of fines. So uh, African and Middle Eastern appearing people were more likely to be issued with these fines that required questioning and white people were more likely to be issued with these face mask um, offences. So that, that gave us, you know, an indication, uh, a clear indication that there was a difference in the way the police were um, policing these COVID um, offences. So, yeah, that's... That's on that basis, we can say that yes, there was racial profiling involved in what the police were doing. It doesn't mean that that explains all the disproportionality, but what it means is that racial profiling was a factor in why these why particular groups were more likely to receive these kinds of offences. So yeah, that's what that's really the the I guess the key finding in in this report was to be able to confirm that yes, racial profiling was a factor. So, um, yeah, and I, that won't come as a surprise to, to your listeners. Previously, when data has been obtained from Victoria Police, and the last time we did this was 10 years ago during the Hale Michael case, we were able to obtain data from the police. And in that data, we also found that African and Middle Eastern groups were more likely to be issued with um, with field contact uh, reports. So that's, that is that they were being questioned on the street. They weren't being issued, they weren't being fined or arrested. They were more likely to be questioned. So this is the second time that data has been obtained from the police and assessed for racial profiling. And again, it repeats, it confirms that despite the 2015 ban on racial profiling, we are still finding these patterns of policing continuing. So... Yeah. Absolutely. And and yet Victoria Police rejects any suggestion that officers targeted specific ethnic groups for COVID-19 offences, according to a spokeswoman That's who right. was asked about the report. That's right. And this is really, really strange for two, well, at least two reasons. First of all, I, what is the basis for their claim that they weren't engaged in racial profiling? That's what I want to know, because... They do not. They do not have any metrics to assess whether or not they're engaged in racial profiling. They do not monitor the police. They have these 
um, policies in 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 um, the police manual, but they do nothing to make sure that that is that their policies and procedures and their programs that they you know operate the operations on the street do not actually racially profile. So I don't know how they can even make that claim. What is the like we're using their own data to show that there's racial profiling. They're not even like where's their source of information? So that's the first thing I want to say about their denial. It's just what's the basis for it. And the second point about this denial is that just on in on the eighth of May this year, the Chief Commissioner of Police made an apology for systemic racism by Victoria Police towards Aboriginal communities. And so we've got this kind of acknowledgement on the 8th of May from the Chief Commissioner that Victoria Police has a problem with systemic racism and uh, he also made a commitment to um, review all of police policies and practices to ensure that there is no disproportionality in the way that the police operate. And so we have this promise and this acknowledgement by the Chief Commissioner a couple of months ago and, and then this denial that came out last Tuesday was just you know, flies in the face of the Chief Commissioner's apology. So, you know, it just doesn't make sense that they're denying um, what's going on. Indeed, indeed. And, and in fact, there's a quote here from the, the Commissioner. As an organisation, we continue to make necessary changes and improvements and it is a firm requirement of mine that we will continually strive to do better. Exactly. Exactly. And so really what we're doing here is providing them, is assisting them in their process and going, hey, your data is showing you've got a problem. You need to address that. And so really what they should be doing is saying, thanks, we need to do this as well. We need to look at our own data and what we're doing and improve what we're doing and and kind of like prevent racial profiling. It is absolutely not acceptable that some people are being policed differently just because of the way they look. So it's, it's just, it's a... It's crazy that they're denying it. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. And also, I suppose we need to briefly mention, and this is actually an, another interview in itself, what happened in the public estates in North Melbourne during the lockdown. Absolutely. And that so was ludicrous. That wasn't, it, that's, that's right. And this particular study wasn't able to no, no. investigate that because it's really just looking at fines that had were sure. issued. but. Exactly. There's, we, we've got, you know, clear examples, and that's something I'll talk about this, this, um, this report too. But, in, yeah, in, in, um, in that lockdown, we saw the way that those towers were suddenly subject to much more draconian um, rules and that what, was, what happened was that about 500 police were called on to police um, and prevent any, any residents from leaving or... Um, getting out, so it was a very heavy-handed reaction, and and yeah, that that you know again you know is questionable and raises questions really. It just all of these are unanswered questions that the police can't just sort of deny. Um, you know w- what they're doing. There's, there are these questions around the policing of this pandemic that really need to be answered. Let's talk about the recommendations. Can you tell us? Why why there needs to be independent investigation and why there needs to be a police ombudsman and I believe that was in the report as well. Yeah, that's right. So there's been um, some. 
a whole lot of studies done into how do you change police culture. So Janet Chan, who's a professor of law at um, UNSW, wrote this fabulous book called Changing Police Culture. And she goes through and she does all of these, you know, examinations of the New South Wales police and and what kind of things that they could do to stop them engaging in, in racism and that basically all of the all of the work, the cultural change work that was being done, um, amounted to very very little. So she became very disillusioned at the end of that um, report that any of these kind of cultural change things on their own were going to do anything to change the types of policing. And she ended up um, concluding that until we actually have proper external accountability and monitoring, external monitoring, there was not going to be any change to the way that the police did their did their duty. So she became a very strong advocate at the end of that work for external accountability systems. So we, and we know um, that we, we've got a, a, a system at the moment that has been found by IBAC to be biased in terms of the handling of um, complaints by Aboriginal people. 22% of... of um, of complaints by Aboriginal people were found to be investigated in a biased manner by IBAC in a report that was released last year. We know that IBAC investigates a tiny proportion of complaints that are made by police. There were five investigated in the last annual report, six in the report prior to that. So it's really, we don't have a system at the moment where police are independently investigated. So we really need a body that can really effectively and independently investigate complaints against police and also monitor what the police are doing um, to ensure that they don't continually engage in racial profiling. So those are um, some of the key recommendations from the report. But, yeah, some other... Just another really interesting finding that hasn't been talked about in the media very much was just the way that the police... We were able to look at the most disproportionate police operations um, in um, across Victoria. And we found that um, for African and Middle Eastern groups, there were particular um, task forces that were just heavily focused, find them at extremely disproportionate rates. So we were finding that, say, for example, the Transit South 4 PSOs 38.9% of the fines they issued were to African and Middle Eastern people, so appearing people. So just incredibly um, disproportionate by those transit groups. So it was transit PC, P, PSOs, there were transit police as well, that were heavily disproportionately focused on African and Middle Eastern appearing people. Um, there were also some crime task force, so the Abona um, task force, in Altona North, 87% of the fines that they issued went to African and Middle Eastern appearance people. And so what it just really shows is that this pandemic was policed in a business-as-usual manner. They, the, All the, the strategies that they were usually using to police people were just being rolled out. They, they were just going to their usual suspects, the people that they were already heavily policing and then um, issuing COVID fines to those groups. So this... It, the the fine analysis kind of provides this really fascinating picture of how the police are operationally structured to target particular groups. So, and for in First Nations communities, we were we were able to show that there were specific uniform branches that were very heavily um, geared to to targeting those communities. So, Mildura uniform had. 
27.8% of fines um, went to First Nations people. Collingwood Uniform, Bansdale, Swan Hill and Shepparton Uniform operations were all very heavily targeted towards First Nations communities. And so I guess I guess it really what this does is bring into sharp relief the whole issue of why do we have police enforcing pandemic health requirements? That they're just going to do what they always do. They're going to um, they're going to police the usual suspects the way that they've been operated, operationally established to police the community is what they will do here. And it just, I guess, it really speaks to the question of what are we as a society hoping to do? Like, are we, were we wanting to um, encourage people to do the right thing? And surely that's about community messaging, um, being in communities with safe and trusted organisations that could tell people what was needed, um, what the requirements were, or what, are we just going to behave yet again in a punitive way, um, in the way that, you know, the, that's what the police do. They, they behave in punitive ways towards the community. So I think Absolutely. it really, um, it, this, this whole kind of, um, you know, looking at the COVID process is just a really sharp reminder that Hey, we need we need a big rethink of how our society kind of manages social health poverty issues, you know, all kinds of issues just need to be reimagined and rethought. Absolutely, Tamar. Now I'm going to have yeah. to leave it there because we actually have a young activist next who's going to be sure. speaking about from the Tamil Maybe. Council. Tamara, it was really lovely um, speaking with you and I'm hoping we can have you back very soon to talk about your PhD and a continuation of the discussion on the COVID report. But we've we've given a great summary. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Marissa. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. And that was Tamara Hopkins, lead researcher of a report that came out uh, recently about disproportionate fines to... Um, marginalised communities, African and Middle Eastern, and racial profiling. Hi, I'm Robbie Thorpe. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series, where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women in Victoria's prisons. Uh, We are such a huge representation in prison all over Australia, statistically, it has to stop and it's going to not going to stop while you're building more beds in a prison. It's a Band-Aid. What about beds outside? Tune in to 3CR during NAIDOC week at 11am each day from Monday the 3rd to Friday the 7th of July. We'll take you inside six Victorian prisons. Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, Barwon Prison, Fulham Correctional Centre, Loddon Prison, Marguerite Correctional Centre and Port Phillip Prison. To hear stories, songs, opinions and poems from the men and women inside while connecting with culture and community. The shows will be live on 3CR 855 on your AM dial, 3CR Digital and streaming via our website or the Community Radio Plus app. For more information, head to our website 3cr.org.au backslash beyondthebars. And we're going to be speaking next with Renuga, um, who is a young Tamil activist that started her active activist journey at the age of 10. And in case people have just tuned in, this is the Doin' Time Show 3CR Community Radio. 
And Renuga's activism started with speaking at various public speaking competitions, drawing awareness of refugee rights by expressing the need to end indefinite detention and providing permanent protection to all refugees. And in her final year of high school, 2020, she was able to attend the 43rd session of human rights in the United Nations Geneva, Switzerland, where it brought attention to the council of two indefinitely detained Ilem Tamils, who had been held for nine years at the time. But she'll talk to us a little bit more in a minute. And basically what we're going to be speaking about is about a young Tamil man who is being denied a permanent visa um, and he has had experienced extreme trauma and he's locked up and he's actually not allowed to be reunited with his mother. Hello, Renita Renuga, sorry, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you going? I want to apologise, we're just running a little bit late, but um, I'm hoping we can still do the interview. Yeah, same here. Thank you so much for having me. Beautiful. Renuga, can you just tell us your full name and, and your title? Um, so I'm Renika Impakuma and I'm the spokesperson of Tamil Refugee Council. Can you just um, tell us a little bit about the media release and what's been going on? Yeah, so basically in the Elam Tamil community, we have a mother and son, the mother being Rita and the son being Dixon. Um, unfortunately, what has occurred is in 2009, as we know, it was the peak of the genocide in Sri Lanka, resulting in many Elam Tamils being victims of the horrendous crimes from the Sri Lankan army. And Rita, being a victim, um, had to witness her husband being bombed by the Sri Lankan army, and Dixon was also, you know, saw this occur. And Rita fled Sri Lanka after being sexually assaulted by the Sri Lankan army. And when she arrived here, she couldn't arrive with her son or her grand, um, her, her mother, being Dixon's grandmother, as she knew that it was she wanted to be able to think, well, how can she have her family be safe and secure? So when she arrived, she went through a hefty process of the Australian immigration system and only received her ROS visa this year. Unfortunately, Dixon had to go through losing his grandmother by himself and having no immediate family members in the homeland of Tamalilam. And he came by plane in 2019 to Australia. Unfortunately, as soon as he arrived, he was locked up in detention and has been separated from his mother, you know, through a brick wall um, and is unable to go home with her, is unable to eat her food, and he's now spending days in Melbourne Immigration Detention Centre, unsure when he will be deported. So, so, so she was determined to find safety. So she left. The mother left Dixon in the care of his grandmother and fled to oh, yeah. Australia, didn't she? In two thousand and twelve. Yes. That's um, in two thousand and sixteen. Sixteen. Sorry. Um, Sorry, um, yeah, in 2000, she, uh, 2013, she came. Yep. Um, but when she came, she came by boat, yep. um, you know, with countless other Tamils. Um, and, you know, being a, um, when she, you know, ha- having to leave her son in the hands of a grandmother, knowing, you know, she, she thought in that time, I'm going to leave you with my mother, knowing we will be, connect- we'll be reunited, you know. Um, and that is what's happened to all these Tamil people, that they be separated in the hopes of being reunited as quickly as possible. But unfortunately, due to Australia's immigration system, that's not the case. 
Um, and Dixon is feeling the brunt of that right now. And Rita is will be currently standing outside Melbourne Immigration Detention Centre today at 6, calling on the Australian government to release her son and to release all refugees to be granted permanent protection. And where is this taking place, this, this vigil? This is being taken place in Melbourne Immigration, in front of Melbourne Immigration Detention Centre from 6 to 7.30pm. And there'll be banners, there'll be placards, and there will be other refugee organisations teamed up with Tamil Refugee Council urging the Australian government to stop this deportation and other deportations. And where is the Melbourne Centre? Um, it's in Melbourne Transit Immigration Detention Centre. Okay, in the city. And the Yes, and the address is actually on our media release, found on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Wonderful. So just to recap, just so that listeners are aware, so Dixon managed to reach Australia by plane in 2019 and then he was placed in immigration detention where he has remained since. And now they're thinking of deporting him. Yes, definitely. And what, what's, what is very confusing is what's causing these deportations to occur is what people don't understand is a DFAT department. Now, the DFAT department have a role in releasing country information reports. So if you look at the recent country information report that was released by DFAT, it states that Sri Lanka is safe. Now, we have been facing 75 years of genocide in Sri Lanka, resulting in the peak of the genocide to occur in 2009, and yet there has been no accountability um, from the Sri Lankan government of the genocidal crimes that they've committed on the Elam Tamils. And to this day, we have deportations occurring, resulting when Tamils having to go back to you know, danger, they are being harassed, being constantly put under surveillance from the CID, Constantly, the police are at their door. They have no job, nothing, and they're constantly living in fear when they're sent back. Some we actually have lost contact. So some we do not know if they're alive. So Rita and Dixon are extremely scared at this point, not knowing whether Dixon, you know, is going to be sent back to death um, at this point. We have no idea how it's going to be like when he goes back to Sri Lanka, especially now that um, all his information is put out just so that we can draw awareness to the situation. I'm so glad that you've come onto the show and I believe that you're also going to be interviewed by Thursday Breakfast. This yes, that's correct. Yeah. Um, and so that will be lovely as we can continue that discussion. So listeners, please tune in to Thursday Breakfast and we will be able to continue this dis- discussion with Renuga. I think what's really despicable here is is the mm-hmm. fact that um, this young man and his mother have mm-hmm. had unbelievable assault and trauma by the soldiers in Sri Lanka and and he's going to be deported he may be deported back to that torture that's correct and this these are soldiers that are taught you know to commit genocidal crimes on Elam Tamils and these Sri Lankan soldiers they're the ones that bombed um Mulibaikal. so if you look at the term no fire zone on google you will notice that those were the zones that the Sri Lankan government had told Elam Tamils to go to, but actually it was planned that when they go there, they'll be bombed repeatedly from the Sri Lankan army. So Dixon's father was killed. So he only right now has his mother as his only carer. And what is really concerning is that we have noticed that the Australian government likes to pick and choose which case 
is approved. Now, the Billy case, that was huge. That was a Tamil family. And if they were to be separated, it would have blown up. But that's because there were two little cute kids involved. In this case, it's a man. And that's very concerning. Um, you know, me, it's concerning for me as an Australian citizen watching on as the Australian government continue to be complicit, trying to separate a mother and son. And this son just wants to be held in his mother's arms. Indeed. Renuga, thank you so much for coming onto the program. It's wonderful to have you. Can you just give us quickly the website for the Australia Council and plug the the rally, the vigil tonight, please, at 6 o'clock? Yes. So if you go to Tamil Refugee Council on Facebook, if you go to events, the event is right there. If you also go on Instagram, it's Tamil Refugee Council. It's the latest post, as well as on Twitter, TRC Australia, and there's another post there. Thank you so and much. Sorry, there'll be a team there um, waiting and they'll be excited and there'll be three speakers and you'll also get to hear from Rita who will explain the situation as well from her own words. That's great. So people, please, listeners, rock up if you can, 6 o'clock, 6 or 7 at the Melbourne Transit Centre um, to to hear the speakers and to protest. Thanks so Thank much, Renuga. So we'll talk Thank soon. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye. And that was Renuga from the Tamil Refugee Council speaking about despicable acts that are being performed, again, violations of human rights against Dixon and his mother. Um, they may deport him to Sri Lanka. Rock up to that rally. Wondering how to pay your donation to 3CR Radiothon? It's easy. You can pay online at 3cr.org.au or call us any weekday with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash or card. Or simply post your cheque or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned. Stay radical. Stay tuned and stay radical to the Doin' Time Show in case people have just tuned in. This is the Doin' Time Show, 3CR Community Radio. And before we actually speak to Kieran, who I really have enjoyed speaking with, this is the third interview that I'm doing with him. Last interview was Stolen Wages on on May Day, talking about that. We're going to be speaking today with Kieran about the Voice to Parliament, any updates, and I might ask him a question about NAIDOC Week if he wants to. But in the meantime, just to let listeners know that we have made our target for Radiothon, over our target actually, and I wanted to thank everybody who donated to the show. Thank you very, very much. And later on, I'm going to be reading out some donations that just came through um, last week. But for now, we're going to be speaking to much-loved activist, Kieran. Hello, Kieran. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Marissa. How are you going? Lovely to have you. Oh, not bad. <laughs> oh, it's it's a crazy show. But um, so Karen, you're a First Nations um, activist. Can you tell us what land you're from? Uh, yeah, I'm a traditional owner of the Wandi Wandi and Clans land up in the UN Nation. Um, it's about 
three hours south of Sydney um, on the south coast of New South Wales, around Nowra, Jervis Bay. And sorry that we're a bit late too. No, that's okay. Now, Kieran, we've talked about the voice to parliament and there's been quite a lot going on. Can you tell us a little bit, because you're from the the Black People's Union? Yep. Is that right? So yep. can you tell us what's been going on, any updates? And there, I'm sure there are new listeners um, here on the Doing Time show. And there's often a yes for, for, the, for the voice, but not enough on the no. So can you yeah. tell us a little bit about what's been going on? Yep, so... Um, the Black People's Union, we've been taking a no approach to the voice department and been campaigning no on that. Um, part of the reason why for people who are, you know, fresh listeners, um, part of the reason why is we see the voice department as not only being some tokenistic, powerless advisory body that won't actually do anything to be able to help us, but we actually see it as a step backwards and a distraction from the real issues of, you know, truth and treaty and self-determination and our people being able to exercise our sovereignty. So, yeah, something that we're fighting and campaigning for is more than just the voice. Um, you know, we don't believe in tokenistic reforms from the government and that, you know, the government actually wants to help us. We have seen dozens of these advisory bodies over the last couple of decades now. Um, all of them have done nothing to actually address our conditions. Um, and, you know, like our deaths and custody rates, our child removal rates, our homelessness and our unemployment rates, anything like that. Um, not only that, if you actually look at the stats over the last couple of decades, um, every time Labor comes into government and tries to introduce these programs, what we actually see is our people's stats getting worse during those times. Now, you know, that's not to say that Liberal help blackfellas. They definitely don't help blackfellas in any way. They're Liberal national parties, but they don't do anything. So, you know, by not doing anything, they're not making things better or worse. Whereas when Labor comes in, they often come in with these paternalistic reforms that only end up making things worse for our people in the long run because it's not self-determination and it's not real consultation with our people. It's just them coming in the same way they have for the last 235 years, saying they know what's best for us blackfellas and they're going to manage our own affairs for us. And, yeah, so this voice proposal is just more of the same that we've already seen. So, yeah, we've been out campaigning no on the voice, um, demanding more. Uh, some of our initiatives that we're trying to push instead as alternatives is we want Indigenous nations across Australia to unite together. Um, we want to see a treaty, but not a treaty with the government. We want to see a treaty in between Indigenous nations um, on this continent so that together we can come together and have that one stronger united force to be able to actually demand better and enforce better for our people. Tell us a little bit about the demands, because I, I don't think we, we were able to talk about that last time. Uh, yeah, the, the demands of the Black People's Union? Yeah. Oh, yeah, so we've got a few. Um, if people have access to the internet, they can head over to our website, it's just blackpeoplesunion.org, to read a bit more. We've got um, a few different like demands and policies written up around stuff like land back and land rights, around incarceration, and you know how we could potentially address our over-incarceration. Um, we've got stuff around our child removal as well. Um, you know, a lot of our own recommendations and potential path forwards to address, you know, the rate at which our children are taken so much. Um, but, yeah, what we're trying to do now is just unite our mob. Um, we're actually in the process of running some donations drives and fundraiser drives to try and 
get a vehicle on the road so that we can actually, you know, hit the road and go out to all these regional communities around Australia. Um, we can, you know, sit down with mob all over Australia and have these discussions with them about, you know, what we need to do to actually, you know, achieve anything for our mob. Because at the moment, the way we see it is, you know, we're this fractured, segregated, divided up little mass all across this country, like all these masses all across the country, all fighting our own individual fights. But all of our fights are the same fights, ultimately. You know, we've all got the same struggle, and that's against capitalism and against colonisation. So what we're trying to do is unite all of our mob together so that we can unite in that fight and that struggle and actually have a more coordinated and organised response to colonisation and be able to actually confront it a bit more head-on and actually achieve something instead of, you know, being segregated off into 101 little struggles in our own little corners of the continent. It seems to me that from what I've seen of, of media articles and TV and radio, not too much is actually talked about with the Black People's Union, which is why I asked you that question about... It wasn't a trick question. It was more to find out a bit more just about the position of, of the Black People's Union in regards to deaths in custody and over-incarceration and child removal, because that's that simply isn't talked about enough, is it? No, yeah, it's not. And the thing is, too, like, a lot of people, when it is talked about, especially in the mainstream media, it's talked about in a way where it's our history instead of our present. You know what I mean? Especially when we yeah. look at stuff like child removal. You know, people talk about the stolen generation being something that happened back in the 1900s. But if we go and look at the stats, our kids are removed more today than they ever were at any period during the 1900s. The stolen generations never ended. They just got even bigger. They ramped it up even more. You know, ever since Kevin Rudd said sorry back in 07, every single year since, more and more of our kids get taken. And it's, yeah, it's, it's not talked about enough. It's not actioned on. They're not doing anything about it in government. You know, we can't rely on the government to do anything about it. And, you know, that's more of the reason why we don't trust something like this voice proposal. You know, they say that they're going to give us a voice to give them recommendations. But what about all of the recommendations they've given them for the last few decades? You know, we've got the the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths and Custodies. That was back in 1991, 31 years ago now. And, you know, they haven't implemented those. They haven't acted on those. There was recommendations of voices 31 years ago, and it's still being ignored. The bringing them a home report came out in, was it 97 or 99? Yep. But, you know, same thing. It's been well over 20 years now. They still haven't acted on it. They still haven't implemented, you know, all of the recommendations from it. And these uh, recommendations that come from community and that come from, you know, experts in the field, and they're just ignored. But we're supposed to believe that they're going to finally listen to our voices now if, you know, a referendum passes. And also, one of the other things that I've I've observed as well is that this type of rhetoric from Peter Dutton and, and these cronies within the Liberal Party, it, it it's kind of weird the way it's the media is trying to connect it up with with the the Aboriginal people that that are saying no. Yeah, yeah, I have noticed that as well, and um, you know, it's. It's wrong what they're doing. Uh, we are not in any way affiliated with the, you know, racist no. You know, these people are out here saying, like people like Dutton, I should say, sorry, people like Dutton and Hanson, they're out there saying no because they don't believe blackfellas should get anything, even if it is scraps that fall off the table. 
Whereas we're saying no because, you know, we actually believe that, you know, we don't want scraps off the table. The table belongs to us. This is our land. You know, we've never ceded our sovereignty. You know, we want more than just a seat at the table. At the very least, we want a seat at the table sort of thing. But, you know, at the end of the day, the table belongs to us. We shouldn't be content with the scraps that fall off it. Indeed. And it's NAIDOC week this week. What do you think about NAIDOC? Um, yeah, look, mixed thoughts on NAIDOC. Um, <laughs> no, look, don't get me wrong. I love the celebration of, you know, yeah. our, our people and our culture and our community. And, you know, I love seeing, you know, that black excellence recognised in our community. And, you know, um, especially when we have themes like this year where we're, you know, paying homage to our elders and to all those, you know, uncles and aunties that have helped pave the way for us younger activists. Um, it's, you know, good to see them being recognised and acknowledged. Um, you know, not a, the biggest fan of some of the commercialisation of NAIDOC, but, you know, it, it is what it is. And at the end of the day, you know, I suppose it's... Uh, you you got to, you know, it's just pros and cons of it all. They really are. Yeah. and They really are. And, and you, like, I was... I thought I'd ask you that question. I haven't done too much on NAIDOC today because... I've been doing a lot of work um, on this show about racial profiling of First Nations people um, and also African and Middle Eastern people during the pandemic with all the fines. Oh, yeah. Yep. And so there was a report written about that. But, look, I I really wanted just to have you on as a follow-up, you know, just to keep this issue alive about the fact that it isn't just about saying yes to the referendum. It's also about saying no. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And look, I really appreciate the opportunity because, you know, most radio stations and newspapers and whatever else, they're just not giving those voices to that progressive no. They're really jumping on either Labor's bandwagon of the, you know, regressive yes, or they're jumping on the racist no. And Pauline Hanson has been interesting. Yeah, <laughs> uh, she always is. <laughs> I won't comment too much more about that, but I... <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous, really. It's uh, yeah, there, there's there's so much conservatism in Australia. It's 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 almost like it's still back in the like 1788 all over again. Yeah, it really is. And like the thing is too, and this is something I've been noticing more and more lately. It's almost as if things are getting so much worse all the time. Like um, you know, one thing I'll quickly mention. Mm. Um, you know, something that you hear quite often about the yes and no of the voice is that we need to vote yes because, you know, a vote no would set us back 20 years or set us back 30 years. But you go look at the stats from 20, 30 years ago, our mob were, for the most part, actually better off back then. You know what I mean? It's, In what yeah. sense? Like, if you go look at the incarceration stats, our mob were less incarcerated then. Our children were being removed at less rates than they are today. Back then, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you know, our people had less homelessness than they do right now. It's, yeah... In a lot of ways, our stats are worse now than they were 30 years ago. Yeah, that's... Uh... And, you know, you've got to remember, too, this whole proposition started with John Howard, you know, nearly 30 years ago, 25-odd years ago. And now you've got the Liberal parties even saying no now when it was originally their idea. <laughs> oh, it's priceless, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's approximately 4.47, and it's been great talking to you, Kieran, and I'm hoping we can have you back at some stage. Yeah, no worries. I'd love to be back on. Good on you. Take care. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. And that was Karen, First Nations activist, speaking about the 
the referendum, the voice to parliament, and looking at over-incarceration and deaths in custody. Get to the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, screening the very best documentaries from South by Southwest, Sundance, Tribeca, as well as the best local Melbourne and Australian documentaries. Online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 30th of July. For more information, head to mdff.org.au and cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. When the night upsets me And my bad dreams won't let me Get to sleep at all The whole night through When the darkness surrounds me And all my demons just hound me Ah, that's when I call And reach for you You have always seen me through With all the times I've cried I don't know what I would do without you by my side when I'm sitting lonely and it seems like you're the only friend I found at least one is true. When they all desert me And anybody tries to hurt me Oh, I turn around And reach for you Sometimes I don't feel so strong Even when I try to be Everything would turn upside down If you weren't here with me Could you fill my heart with gladness And don't criticize my madness When I'm naked Cold and blue Cause you hold me till the morning And slowly it comes dawning That is sacred When I reach for you 
and you're back with the Doing Time show, and that was a big sigh on my part. There's been a lot going on, hasn't there, um, on the show today? Some quite, some quite harrowing topics. It's approximately four fifty-two, and we're nearing the end of our show. And you just heard a song by Archie Roach, and I wanted to actually read out some donations that came through over the last couple of weeks. I read out some other donations two weeks ago. And first of all, before we go any further, <clears throat> excuse me, I wanted to thank everybody who's donated to the Doing Time Show and also to all shows at 3CR. So I'm just going to read out the rest of the donations. Thank you very much to Marion, who donated $250, $100 from Matt, $30 from Monique from the Human Rights Law Centre, $50 from Thomas from the Human Rights Law Centre. Thank you very much indeed um, to everybody who donated to the show and I just wanted to to really emphasise that your donations are greatly, greatly appreciated. Wondering how... Need an extra layer for the cooler months? We've got great new long sleeve tops that proudly say Workers Radio. Available now online or at the station. Perfect for layering when you're out on the street. They'll have you picket line ready for winter. At $40, you'll get a great quality shirt ethically and locally manufactured by Quali Tops in Reservoir. Order now and we'll post one out for $8.50. Or you can pick it up from the station. Buy one online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop or come into the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. And you're back with the Doing Time show. It's approximately 4.54 and that song by Archie Roach was actually called Reach For You. You heard three interviews today. You heard the first interview was with Tamar Hopkins, who is a lead researcher um, of a report that was released last Tuesday about the COVID-19 fines and racial profiling. Then you heard from Renuka from the Tamil Council, and there's actually going to be a, a rally tonight at 6 o'clock at the Melbourne Detention Centre in the city. And then after that, you heard from Kieran, First Nations activist who spoke about the voice to parliament, and he's from the Black People's Union. It's approximately 4.54, and it's goodbye from Marissa. Stay tuned every Monday for the Doing Time show from 4 to 5, and be nice to each other and take care. And you'll be, we'll be going out now with our theme song, Black Fella, White Fella from the Rumpy Band. And I'll see you next week. Stay strong and stay radical. Thanks. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.
Are you the 